morning, ENC, and welcome to chapel today. My name is Josiah Golden, or as many of you guys know me as JoJo, and I'm a freshman here at ENC. I have some announcements to share with you guys this morning. Each week we are emphasizing a different spiritual practice through the Rhythm series. There are prayer stations and helpful videos about each of those practices. You can check that out in the Spiritual Development Canvas page or at ENC SPDEV social media pages. Session 2 small groups begin in just a couple of weeks. If you are interested in leading one of those groups, please reach out to Carrie Lewis by this Friday. Sign-ups for these small groups will begin next week, so keep an eye out for that. The Office of Spiritual Development has been made aware of an issue with chapel credits on the student portal. They are currently working with IT to fix that and resolve that issue as quick as possible. Uh, they will send out an update when they can. If you guys have any questions, please reach out to Shelby Robinson. Thank you for joining us today. God bless and enjoy today's chapel. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to chapel this morning. Glad you're here, whether you're joining us uh, here in person this morning or joining us online, we're glad you're with us. So the topic for uh, this morning's chapel is that of prophetic lament. I know that may not be a phrase that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, hopefully you'll be f more familiar with it by the time that we're done today. Uh, but obviously when we talk about lament, we mean an idea of, of mourning, of grieving, of identifying the things that are are wrong in the world, and when we attach that word prophetic to it, part of what we're referencing is the, the prophets of the scriptures, right? That often the prophets themselves who spoke for God, who brought God's uh, message to the people of Israel, they often spoke in lament. They complained to God about what was going on in the world. And so when we put those two words together, we say that lament is is not only this sort of acknowledging what's wrong or grieving or acknowledging the sadness, but even to say that it is appropriate response to God, that it is appropriate Christian language uh, to, to offer these words to God, in some cases on behalf of God, as we identify the things that we lament uh, in this world. So we're go you're going to be hearing more about that this morning. You can see that the religion and culture faculty is here on the platform with me this morning. And we have the privilege of hearing from each one of them on this topic this morning. We thought this topic was really appropriate uh, at this time of year as we find ourselves right in the middle of the season of Lent. That during this season, of course, we are remembering Jesus' journey towards the cross and ultimately his crucifixion and death. And really, I don't think there are many things that could signify us more the things that are worth lamenting in this world. The idea that our own Savior was put to death because of the sins that exist among us uh, speaks to the things that are, are wrong with this world and the, the things that we need to lament. You may also remember that uh, during our Ash Wednesday chapel, in which we began this season of Lent, uh, we had offered a time for you to write and offer prayers of confession. That this was a, a common practice in the season of Lent, a time of confessing our sin, and that we were going to take those written prayers of confession 
uh, and, and burn them. As a sort of metaphor for the refining fire, the refining work that God does among us when we confess our sin, and of course also that connection of ash to Ash Wednesday, which is a reminder of our own mortality, our own finiteness. Um, and so we are going to incorporate that practice into this chapel this morning as well. You may remember that the Ash Wednesday Chapel had to be entirely remote. We couldn't have anybody here in person for that chapel. Uh, and so we didn't have that opportunity to burn those prayers as you left that day. But you are going to have that opportunity today. And so you should have received uh, paper and a pen as you entered this morning. And so I'd encourage you, as a way of participating in the service this morning, uh, to write a prayer either of confession, confessing your own sins or confessing the sins of our community, or to write a prayer of lament, to identify the things in our world that have gone wrong, the things that, that grieve you and bring you sadness, and to express those genuine emotions to God in that writing. As you leave today, uh, there will be a fire out front where you will have the opportunity uh, to burn those prayers of confession as you leave, and we're going to take the ashes from those prayers and do something with them in a later chapel. Uh, so that's something for you to look forward to. So that's one way for you to participate today. Um, here in just a moment, we're going to see a video uh, that is a dramatized reading from our very own Julius Cuthbert of Psalm 88, one of the Psalms of Lament. Uh, and I would encourage you as we watch and hear this video to take that time to begin thinking about that prayer that you're going to write. But you can also do that at any point throughout the chapel uh, as you listen this morning. So that's one way you can participate. Another is that we also hope to have a time for questions at the end. Uh, and so we'll have a microphone available for those of you who are present here this morning uh, if you want to ask questions. Those of you who are joining us on the live stream this morning, you can go ahead and uh, type your questions right there in the chat on the live stream. And we'll be monitoring those. And those questions can be presented to us uh, at the end as well. So I hope you'll participate in both those ways. So at this time, let's turn our attention to the screen and uh, hear this reading of Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who sees me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord, in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. 
I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Thank you so much, Julia, for sharing that video with us. Uh, I thought we could begin this, by, this morning by just very quickly uh, introducing ourselves. So Dr. Nielsen, if you would start, and we'll just go across the platform, if you could just sure, my say name a is, word about yourself. Yeah, my name is John Nielsen. I serve as a part of this wonderful group of faculty from the Religion and Culture Program. Also serve as the director of ENC Music. And uh, so thankful for Julia's work with that from our Psalms class this winter. So that was great to see. Good morning, folks. My name is Dr. Phil LaFountain, and I teach theology here at ENC. Good to be with you today. My name is Julene Tegerstrand, and I teach uh, intercultural studies. My name is Rose Percy, and I also teach in intercultural studies, and I'm a student at Boston University School of Theology. Matt Thomas, I teach uh, Christian tradition and living issues. And I'm Dave Young, the chaplain. I also teach some of the Bible classes here. Uh, so Dr. Nielsen, if we could start with you, this area of prophetic lament is actually one that you've done quite a bit of work in. Uh, both in sort of your pastoral ministry and research, especially thinking about the role of this kind of lament in worship. So I wonder if you could just start us off this morning by giving us a just basic idea of what this is even about, what is prophetic lament, and, and why you think it matters, why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if there's any uh, musical theater fans in the, in the audience. I know there's at least a couple. Uh, so one of my favorite shows is uh, Les Miserables, and there's a song in that, uh, Empty Chairs and Empty Tables, and it begins with this phrase, uh, there's a grief that can't be spoken. And there's times that we experience sorrow and loss and grief in our lives. And sometimes we don't even have words for that. We don't know where to turn with that. We don't know how to talk about it. And the reality is, even in the church, even as followers of Christ, we don't do a great job in what we sometimes see as the negative emotions of our experience in life. So what do we do with sorrow, anger, grief, uh, anxiety, frustration, uh, despair? And yet the Psalms and other places in scripture as well give us all these examples of offering those emotions and feelings to God and sharing them there. And so those griefs can and should be uh, spoken. Uh, it's crazy that it's a year ago that we were starting to live into and discover what this whole you know, pandemic was going to be about. We were, you know, we were going home for two weeks and uh, we were not sure what was happening. And early on in that pandemic, there was a uh, an article in, of all places, the Harvard Business Review, and it was responding to the pandemic and all that we were experiencing, and the title of the article grabbed me immediately, and it said, what you're experiencing is grief, and there's a sense in which whenever we see things in our own lives that aren't the way that we thought that they should be, or things that come uh, that we weren't expecting, when we see, as, as Prof. Young has said, the issues in the world that should uh, just cause us to be upset and angry and, and when we see racial injustice, when we see hostility, when we see violence, when we see uh, fellow Asian Americans targeted uh, even yesterday, when we see these elements in our world, well, we cry out with, with, with lament, with sorrow, with grief. And the things that we're experiencing uh, those sorrows that we experience, the grief that we feel, the anger that we feel, the uncertainty, the, the sense of, of being isolated and, al and alone, right? This Psalm 88 that we heard um, is not only a psalm of lament, but it's one of the only, most scholars say, the only psalm of lament 
that just laments to the end and has no turn towards hope or trust or praise. It just, it just kind of ends there, right? And sometimes we feel that way. And so when we feel those things, uh, there is actually a biblical practice, a biblical language, a posture that God offers to us, and we call that lament. Lament is this uh, sacred sorrow, right? Um, anytime that we experience loss of any kind, and that loss can include when we see things in the world that aren't right. And so we see uh, violence, we see uh, racism, we see things that are, are uh, you know, people treating each other in ways that, that we really uh, th say this is incompatible with who we are as human beings and incompatible with the gospel. Whenever we experience loss, and that can be a loss of hope or a dream or an expectation. And even anger is, is a response of loss because that expectation isn't met. That when we experience grief, which is not just about death, although of course it includes that, it's really about loss. And when we experience loss, we're experiencing grief, and we need to name that as grief. And the vehicle that the scriptures give us to respond to that is lament, and that it's a gift. Um, and we can do that through prayer and through silence and through our tears and through sharing together and, and through scripture, reading psalms of lament and sometimes through music and the arts. Uh, uh, Above Rose is a, is a painting that actually I commissioned from our own Sarah Kirksey uh, called Lament. It's an abstract tear. Uh, we, can, we can express our lament in some way, whatever form that needs to take. And I would just want to say as we begin about lament to say that we want to affirm lament as a needed act. We all need uh, to be able to express these feelings and emotions and to take them to God. Um, let me quick survey for those in the room. If, if, if up here, if someone would, or any kind of setting that you're in, a church service or a small group setting or just uh, people, you know, gathered around uh, in whatever setting it might be, and someone begins to cry, what will probably one of the first things they say? Somebody shout, what do you think one of the first things they'll say if they start to cry in a public setting? I'm sorry. I've asked that question hundreds of times over the last years I've been speaking and talking about lament, and inevitably that is the immediate answer, right? We have uh, a tendency to apologize for our tears, right? And that tells me we need to know more about lament because we haven't learned how to, in community, right, take those tears to God and to share them with one another. So that lament is a needed act, but also that it's a faithful act, right? This is not... This is not anything other than a, a demonstration of our belief and trust in God because we're taking those things, we don't know where to take them, and we take them to God and we share them uh, in God's presence. We offer them as a sacrifice. We offer them uh, to God in, in prayer, in silence, in weeping. And, and we need to understand that not only do we need this you know, prophetic lament, this statement to God that uh, this is who I am, this is what I'm experiencing, this is how I'm feeling, but that, that that is a faithful act. It does not show weakness. It shows strength. It is not uh, a sign of, of not being faithful. It's a sign of, of genuine faithfulness. But I would also want to say as we just kind of set the stage that lament needs to not just be something we do individually, but that lament, and especially prophetic lament, is lament that we need to do together in community. It's a corporate act. It's something that we need to learn how to do together. And the honest truth is we don't know how to do that very well. We're still taking baby steps to understand how do, we, how do we lament together? How do we weep together? How do we offer our sorrow? Uh, how do we respond to injustice? How do we respond to the things in the world that are not uh, the way that we know that they should be? 
And that's where I also want to say that the lament is this confessional, prophetic, intercessory act that we, that we offer our sorrow and lament uh, as one of the first steps. It's obviously not the only step or even the last step because uh, prophetic lament needs to move us to action ultimately. But it is a necessary step for us to begin uh, to confess together, to say together, this is not the way it should be. And to, to offer that as lament. So issues of reconciliation, issues of violence, issues of injustice in the world, that lament is one of the postures, one of the starting places that can unite us as, <coughs> excuse me, as we, in the words of a song by Michael Card, as we weep the tears of the world. And, and we together offer that sorrow to God. And so uh, just to, to kind of wrap up, and I'll pass it over, uh, that lament is this holistic act of offering all that we experience to God. And as we think about that in our community, and to think about that here at ENC, think about that in the context of the church. Uh, again, another song, you'll <laughs> forgive my allusions to all these uh, musical expressions, but they are one of the ways that I connect with this. Um, but there's a wonderful song that simply says, if this is not a place where, where tears are understood, uh, then where shall I go to cry? And part of understanding lament together is to say that we will be a place where tears are understood. We won't apologize. Uh, we will uh, embrace one another and recognize that we are faithfully offering our lament to God. Um, a lot more I could say, but let me, let me stop there. And I think I'm within my five minutes now. I, yeah, I think you did well. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Nielsen. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I appreciate that you brought up is especially in this context of Christian worship, right? That, I mean, so one of the ways that I think about the place of lament in the church communally is, you know, how often in a worship service do you hear a song in a minor key, right? Um, and, I mean, I think so often we feel like our church services always have to be these sort of happy celebrations, right? Like if it's, if it's not happy and upbeat, it's almost like something's wrong, right? And, of course, there's a, there's a place for all that, right? To, there's certainly, as we celebrate the resurrection, like there is a place for that happiness and that, that celebration. Um, but, I mean, I think of this especially now while we're in this season of Lent, which is, you know, in the church calendar, kind of a somber season, right? We're, we're journeying with Jesus towards the cross. Um, this, is a, this is a place, a space for lament, a space for identifying, you know, not just all the things that are good and right, but also the things that are wrong and evil, and that that's an important part of our Christian witness, too. I, I also appreciated, you know, that you characterize this as faithful witness, right? This isn't, this isn't just something we do to kind of make ourselves feel better, right, and to acknowledge our own emotions, although that's important. Um, but it, that lament and prophetic lament is also faithful Christian speech, right? It's, it's part of what it means to proclaim God faithfully. And I think we see that in the scripture. You mentioned some of those, right? The Psalms, the prophets. Um, but we see this in a number of places. I mean, one of my one of my favorite prophets in the Hebrew Bible is the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, just three little chapters. It's a short little book. But, you know, at the beginning of Habakkuk, the prophet cries out to God and says, How long, O Lord, will I cry out to you violence and you do nothing? Right? So Habakkuk sort of challenges God to say, Hey, aren't you holy? Aren't you supposed to do something about this? And there's this forthrightness and this frankness in that prophetic speech. To God. Um, so you see this in a lot of different prophets, a lot of different psalms. I mean, we often talk about the prophet Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. 
Of course, we have a whole book called Lamentations, right, that is all about the lamenting of the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, but there's one psalm in particular that always comes to mind for me when I think about this topic. And, and just as a sort of warning, it is actually kind of a, a vicious and uh, graphic psalm. Not often the kind of thing you actually expect to find in the Bible. Um, but Psalm 137, uh, which begins by saying, we sat down by the rivers of Babylon and wept. Right? So this is a psalm that is written in exile. The people of Israel have been taken into captivity in a foreign land, and they have lost everything that they've ever known, right? They've, they've seen their homeland destroyed. They've seen the temple, which represents God's presence with them, burned down, right? And they've been taken and made to live in a foreign land. And the way that that psalm ends, remarkably, is it says, blessed is the one who takes your little one and dashes them against the rock. So in other words, the, this psalm ends by saying, blessed is the person who takes the Babylonians' babies and smashes their heads against rocks. And while on the one hand that's sort of terrifying, right, uh, and you, we maybe are even a little embarrassed about it in a way, like we don't want that in our scripture, but I think the thing that I find redemptive and hopeful about it is that if the psalmist can say that to God, then what can't I say to God, right? There's, there's no speech that's sort of off limits in my expressions to God, in, in my frankness, my sadness, my grief about the world. And I think that psalm sort of signals to us that, like, there is no emotion that you have that God can't handle, right? Uh, and so... This lament is a, is a faithful, prophetic response to the things that we see in the Word. We see this in the biblical witness. Dr. LaFountain, I want to turn to you now and ask you um, how you think, uh, you know, we see this biblical witness, right? We, we see this witness to prophetic lament in the scripture. How, how does that inform us about the nature and character of God? Yeah, one of the things we think about theologically is what is the relationship or the connection between our Christian practices and here the Christian practice of lament and the nature of God, who God is, the God who we worship, the God we adore. And um, I want to suggest to you that underlying this or the very nature of God that informs this practice of lament is really this idea of a suffering God, the revelation of a suffering God. But one of the problems that we face in the history of Christian thought is that we inherited this idea of a God that doesn't suffer, right? And we got it from the Greeks, you know, this rationalized uh, idea that the, the, the God, that the divine is perfect, that God is unmovable and unchanging. This God is rational and detached, unaffected by the things that happen. In fact, Plato, the great philosopher, place the divine reality at an infinite distance from the world so that God wouldn't be tainted by the world, right? You know, imagine that. And we, as Christians, we inherited this idea, the idea that God is impassable, that the idea is passion, right? That God doesn't suffer, that God doesn't get wrapped up with passion and, and, and desire. In fact, God is incapable of suffering, and if we take that kind of God, then there is no connection between lament 
and the nature of God. But there's been a quiet revolution in Christian theology in the last 200 years, moving towards this idea that maybe the God who's revealed in Scripture, which is really we take our, where we take our theology from, right? Not so much philosophy or the culture, but revelation. And this recovery of what we call theopacitism, right? The idea that God suffers. And Ron Goetz, who is a Christian uh, theologian, in 1986 wrote an article in Christian Century, The Rise of a New Orthodoxy. And he says, what is remarkable about this God-suffering revolution has been its development as a kind of open secret. The doctrine of a suffering God is so fundamental to the very soul of our understanding of God today that it has emerged with very few theological shots needing to be fired. Indeed, the doctrinal revolution occurred without a widespread awareness that it was even happening. Now, some find the God of the Bible, he says, not to their taste. But today, few scholars would disagree that the God of the Bible is a personal, passionate, jealous, concerned, and suffering God. So how does that idea of God revealed in the scriptures in Revelation relate to this idea of lament? And when we think about lament, we're confronted with the rawness of it, right? It's volatile. It's a voice of grief, as David has pointed out. Raw emotions like anger and frustration and fear and terror, despair, abandonment, shame, rejection, grief, both personal and communal, right? And there's this crying out to the creator uh, in these kinds of ways, this existential frustration. We, it's not supposed to be this way, this vision, this hope that lies behind our lament. But there's an utter faith and a God beyond our human experience and comprehension. This transparent and open relationship that God invites us in, this partnership and cooperation. And of course, the radical eschatology that's a part of that. That God is going to redeem the world and in fact isn't currently now reconciling the world to himself. But how does lament connect with the very nature of God? And we see in scripture then in places like Hosea, in places like Isaiah, where God cries out in rebe to rebellious Israel, right? When God's patience has been pushed to the limit and God is needing to correct Israel, to punish Israel. And he can't because he loves her. And the grief, the passion comes out. I reared you as children and brought them up. They have rebelled against me. And he asked, why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? But for me, the classic text is in Micah, where God, pushed to the limit, brings Israel to divorce court, right? The image is this lawsuit, and God is taking Israel to court for breaking the covenant. And he can't do it. He stands up to testify against Israel in this imagined court. And he says, my people... What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? I was the one who brought you up out of Egypt. I nurtured you. I cared for you. And this whole sense that God despairs and he, he laments that he's going to have to punish Israel. And he can't stand it. It's remarkable. So the very nature of God when he has to challenge this people that he created, he brought out of 
darkness, and he brought out of Egypt and, and nursed her and cared for her, and not the Baals, not the Asherahs, right? And yet they keep running after these false gods. So God's own nature is to lament that God suffers here for his people. And then, obviously, uh, the most, one of the most poignant passages is where Jesus laments on the cross and voicing, crying out. Boao is the term that is used uh, to, to uh, cry out at one's voice at a high level, shout or cry. And Jesus cries out and, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we all know that comes from Psalm 22, which is a lament psalm. But too often people rush to the end of the psalm where it has some measure of hope, right, you know? And I say, no, don't do that. Wait, delay, hold on, right? Jesus is suffering and he's crying out to God, his Father. And uh, so we see it in God's own nature that God laments. He cries out with unrestrained emotion, hurt, abandonment, sorrow. And so I ask these kinds of questions. How does this idea of a suffering God inform lament? We're actually doing what God is doing. We're modeling and mimicking God when we cry out and lament for the sins, the brokenness of our own lives and the world, and we do the things that God does. But I ask other questions. So how does lament inform God's sovereignty, the nature of Trinity, Christology, the nature of Christ, right? Even sanctification and holiness. What does it mean to live that kind of life? And we see that lament is merely walking in the footsteps of Jesus and being like our God, who at heart is a suffering God. Thank you so much, Dr. LaFountain. Uh, Professor Percy, I want to turn to you now. And uh, why, why, why are you shaking your head? <laughs> it was the word professor. I was like, oh, okay. I'm oh, sorry. It's a weird word. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we've heard uh, Dr. Nielsen identify some of the sort of practical ways that this topic really matters for us right now, you know, specifically uh, thinking about in living in the midst of a pandemic and also thinking about racial injustice and all that we've seen with that over the past year, over the past several years, but of course a much longer history than that. So I wonder um, if you could reflect for us on what kind of role prophetic lament plays, especially in the, the question of racial injustice. Um, I mean, does it does it make a difference? Like, does it does it do something for us um, in this sort of very practical concern? Absolutely. Um, I just want to echo a phrase that I've heard already so far, um, and I want us to make space for this. This is going to be a call and response moment um, because I I don't know. For me right now, I feel like we are in a place where we need to lament. Um, but the phrase is, "It doesn't have to be this way." Um, which to me just speaks and underscores um, what we're talking about. So I'm just going to name a few things. And if you could all just repeat that phrase, it doesn't have to be this way. We can create a space to open up some lament and prepare us. Um, but last night, uh, yesterday, I read the, the news about a shooting in Atlanta where eight Asian women uh, were shot and has been reported that some are have have died. Um, if we could just take the space now to say, this past summer, hearing about the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, 
having to endure all of the transformation that we've done in this past year to, to doing things online, to social distancing, to checking in on our relatives, to make sure that everyone is okay. Doesn't have to be this way. While the cases keep piling up and we keep hearing more and more about those who are not um, adhering to those guidelines and further increasing the daily stress and prolonging our wait. And so last year around this time, um, I took a journey down to Atlanta and Birmingham, Selma and Montgomery. And one of the places that we visited there while we were looking at all of these different um, sites along the civil rights, uh, you could say the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, but I will tell you that we're still in it. Um, but there's something about going to these places and, and seeing the churches, seeing the, um, you know, seeing the suitcase that MLK had with him on the day that he died and, and seeing these physical reminders that, that further emphasizes that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, it didn't have to be that way then um, and it still is this way. One of the places that we stopped at was the National Lynching Museum and Memorial in Montgomery. And those of you who have taken first year experience probably read um, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Um, you might also know that there's a movie out starring Michael B. Jordan, um, which is a very good movie to, if you don't have time to read the book. Um, but the Legacy Museum itself in Montgomery was actually built inside of a former slave warehouse. And now it houses um, all of these different um, places and, and uh, you know, pictures and, and like interactive um, sites that you can interact with to learn the history of, of slavery um, to our modern day mass incarceration. So you see the link there and you get to stand in that warehouse and experience the profound discomfort of being overwhelmed by how prevalent and um, visceral and, and, and still somehow ignored and cast aside that these histories are. And so I saw the museum, I went to the memorial site, which is a little bit always from the museum. Um, we get to the memorial site, um, at some point, if you want to look up what it looks like, um, I'd suggest doing that, but I will do my best to describe it for you. But it's almost like a zen-like experience because you go and it's quiet. It's quiet. The grass is super green. Everything is brand new. It's only a couple years old. Um, but the first thing you see are um, these real-to-life sculptures of African slaves in chains and the expressions on their faces it are so detailed that you can almost hear the sound. Like you, you hear it in your spirit somehow. But as you walk through uh, the actual memorial site, you encounter these pillars about, I'm about 5'10", so I felt like each one of them was like about the length of my own body. But like you start off and they're just like facing you and each of those pillars contains the names of people who were lynched 
um, within a state, within a county, within a year. So my first uh, way through as I'm, as I'm starting off in this memorial site, like I just wanted to look at all the names, just look at them, just to acknowledge them, to have them affect me somehow. But you get to a point where you just can't, you can't read all of the names. You have to go through, and as you're going through and walking, um, the platform starts to walk, you start to walk downwards, and the pillars just get higher and higher and higher. Before you know it, you're looking up, and you're realizing that there are thousands of names of people, and it's so hard to take in. Um, but we only spent about an hour in that place, but I'm sure we c I could have been there for hours and hours and hours just taking in the names. And one of the things that they have at the memorial site as when you get to the end of it is the same, um, each of the pillars that are in the, in the actual ins installation, there's a repeat pillar somewhere so that hopefully different places in the country could take a pillar and put it somewhere publicly to continue on in remembering um, each one of those people um, and to, to name this history and for it to have a place to exist. And so as I was taking all of this in um, and having to go on with my week, having to go on with doing more learning and more encountering of, of hardship, I felt in my body a need to lament. Um, and so I reached for this book and we've been throwing this name around, but uh, Prophetic Lament is actually a book by Soon Chan Ra, who writes uh, about this need for the American church to acknowledge its deep denial of its historic participation in slavery and racism, amongst other injustices. The American church, as we've already said, is shaped by this theology of celebration and triumph and when I say the American church, I need to be specific. We're talking about white churches. We're talking about churches that are, um, that are, for a better, like lack of a better word, just not accustomed to dealing with the sufferings of, of African-American people and other people of color in the United States. But Ra is talking about this triumphantalism and this need to shape a culture of lament in these spaces. And lament is necessary if the church is going to engage with those who understand and know what it means to be othered in this society. So prophetic lament for Sun Shan Ra is about creating a way to get past these praise only worship models that Dr. Nielsen already spoke about and to create a space for comfort, um, a space to acknowledge death and the dead bodies um, the loss of security and comfort that so many are dealing with in our society today. Um, and just as the memorial uh, stands as a place where we can encounter the history and think about its relationship to the present, prophetic lament is able to do such a thing. And Sunshan Ra writes that shalom requires lament, and shalom means peace. It is also a place for us to um, embrace a subversive memory. One of the things that you will learn if you um, encounter history or, or teachings of history, um, at least for me growing up in the American school system, there's just some things you don't hear about, some histories you do not hear about um, without just like maybe encountering just like a couple sentences here and there. Um, but prophetic lament is about truth telling. 
in our history and creating spaces where those truths can be named. It is it's about embodiment and taking embodied life as seriously as God does. So in the epilogue of this book, Sunshan Ra talks about Ferguson and the death of Mike Brown, um, who's a 17-year-old boy, and he was killed on August 9th, 2014. Mike Brown's body laid on the ground for four plus hours in the summer heat as people passed by and they took pictures and cried out to the police saying that his body is right there. Can you please cover it up? Can you please do something? And that day, August 9th and afterwards sparked a movement we all know as Black Lives Matter. And when I say Black Lives Matter, I want you to also hear the phrase, it doesn't have to be this way. So six years later, we're looking at and thinking about the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. And to be the church that we are, that continues to um, say that we are beyond race and in our post-racial society is simply a lie. Um, it's to say all lives matter instead of saying black lives matter. All lives matter to me speaks of triumphantalism. It speaks of, of, of trying to find a simpler narrative to embrace and to ignore and cover up and silence the pain. But to embrace prophetic lament is to say and to look at the realities that black people in America are facing and to realize that those realities speak to the truth that black lives do not matter. So prophetic lament is about confronting that devaluation of life with a profound theological statement that black lives do matter and to embrace a place for nuance and open-endedness and wondering. Because when you get into the work of racial justice, you will find yourself confronting more and more complicated narratives. You'll get to a place where walking into a church service and being told it's going to be okay is not enough for you anymore. Where you will need a space to say, it doesn't have to be this way. Thank you so much, Rose. Appreciate you inviting us into that, that call and response and also that, that invitation to, to naming truth uh, for what it is. Uh, Professor Tigerstrand, um, you've done quite a bit of work and are continuing to do work in the areas of reconciliation and peacemaking. How do you see this topic of prophetic lament impacting the work that you do? It's been fun to work with Rose in the last year or so plus, and I feel like we often are in tandem in ways. So uh, one of the things she mentioned is um, the importance of lament and shalom, and that there really is no shalom without lament. I think we heard that really clear in what she was saying, and one of my... Um, kind of go-to people is Parker Palmer. I love the work that he does with education and creating safe spaces for people for transformation. But one of the things he says that's really captured me is that violence erupts when we don't know what to do with our suffering. And so lament is one of those things that I think we can do with our suffering. And it's a way into of dealing with the integration of um, what happens, or it's a, it's a way of integrating the suffering and healing from it. 
So, like we said, I, I've, in the last number of years, my interest with the dissertation I'm working on has been peace building and conflict transformation. And in particular, I'm interested in how does contemplative, Christian contemplative um, postures, practices, how does it influence the way that particularly women um, approach their work of conflict transformation and peace building? And so one of the people that I've been learning from is a man named Johan Goltung. He was a pioneer in peace research, and he defines violence as the impairment of fundamental human needs or the impairment of human life. But he also talks about how the threat of violence or the threat of the impairment of human needs is also violence. As I sit with that, I, I think about all the places in our society that have become uncovered where we're seeing the impairment or the threat of impairment of human need. And I think, wow, there is a lot of violence that's happening in our world. And so I wonder what suffering has gone unintegrated, unhealed to develop these violences that we're all affected by in differing degrees. I think about you know, examples of violence in our society that are kind of on the surface are, I think about kids who are afraid of their safety uh, in school, whether it's the pandemic, but I actually was thinking about um, how gun violence in school, like there's these narratives, there's these stories in our kids' lifetime that can create um, fear. I think about people of color who think twice about things like running sleeping in their own bed, visiting their grandmother, or just driving a car. Um, and I think, wow, there is a precedence, like, you know, and it goes all the way back to lynching and beyond um, for them getting killed doing these simple things that we all do in life. And then I think so many of us um, are aware of the suffering that's happening during this pandemic, whether it be experiences of increased depression, or you know or you are someone who's been a part of a family that's struggling to put food on the table or is being threatened for eviction. I mean, there's so much uh, suffering that's happening and it makes me concerned that what violence is going to come out of what we're experiencing in this time. So violence is more than just emotional and physical harm. And that's, that's generally what we think about. That's what I often think about when I think of violence. And I think what's important in our time to recognize is that violence also comes in the form of structural and systemic injustice. And this violence is sneaky because it's hidden from a lot of us, particularly those of us who come from the dominant culture, the dominant, who have these dominant identities. So when, Paul, when Palmer writes that violence erupts when we don't know what to do with our suffering, it really, for me, begs the question, how is suffering connected to violence of all kinds, including structural and systemic? I think it's an invitation to notice more of how we are suffering and what that suffering is doing to us as a society. I also think it means for particularly those of us like myself who are in, who have these dominant aspects of my identity because I'm white and I'm educated, that we have got to um, attune ourselves to the suffering that is happening all around us and that in some ways we're contributing to or we're participating in. 
One of those things that's really become more aware to me is during this pandemic, the system that is impairing human needs is related to healthcare. Something that I really didn't understand so clearly um, before the pandemic is how important healthcare is to not just you know, those of us who have an economic means, but to those of us who lack economic means, that people who don't have access to healthcare, their health affects my health and your health. So like their need to take care of um, fighting against the COVID connects with my need to stay safe. So th that, for me, it's like the interconnectedness of our uh, suffering, I think is what it's helped me see. So I think figuring out what we can do with our individual and our collective and our structural suffering, <laughs> I think is essential to building peace. So to connect it with a, a, to lament is that I think a robust and multifaceted approach to lament is really needed in our church and society. And lament is a practice of peace building. So allowing ourselves to feel pain and noticing the pain of others, that's a practice of peace building. But even more, I think to respond to structural violence, I think we need to imagine what kind of structures are needed in our church, in our institutions, that will help us lament. And honestly, I say that, but I, I'm also needing to gain imagination of like, what, what might it mean for lament to be embedded in structures? If we think it's so important and if it can actually keep us from perpetuating violence. So Palmer, again, he talks about how suffering requires, he calls it a microclimate of quietude around ourselves. He's a Quaker, if you know anything about Quakerism. So he's saying that we need to create a climate, and, and I wonder if we might even translate it as saying we need to create structures or a culture of lament around ourselves. So I think what he's talking about really invites us to allow in our structures, a sense of um, the turmoil in our lives to settle. And for he talks about having this inner quietude to emerge. And perhaps that's, that's connected to the sense of healing and integration that's needed when we experience suffering. Thanks so much for that. Uh, I'm going to turn here in just a moment to Professor Thomas. But before we do, I just want to remind you um, that if we should have just a little bit of time for questions at the end, maybe one or two. So if you have any questions, you can be thinking about that and be ready to jump in with those. And also, if you're watching on the live stream, you can put those in the chat and we can rela relay those as we have time. Uh, and also a reminder that uh, the prayers, you'll be able to take the prayers that you've written and, and burn those outside as we leave. So Professor Thomas, uh, you're also Reverend Thomas. Uh, you, you pastor a, a local church here in Quincy. So I'm curious to hear your sort of pastoral reflections and what you've heard today and how, how you see this um, having an impact in a local church context. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to echo as many of my colleagues have said, um, our world is marked by pandemics. These are difficult days to be in ministry. The global pandemic of COVID-19, things were, are not as they were. 
Yet, as my colleagues have mentioned, we worship a God who, can, who we can turn to in the midst of overwhelming days, a God who suffers alongside of us, as Dr. LaFountain suggested, a God who hears the cries of the slaves in Egypt, a God who cares deeply about the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. And while we're living in the COVID-19 pandemic, we are also living in a pandemic of institutionalized and structural racism. While COVID-19 is relatively new, institutional racism has been going on in this continent for over 500 years. Police brutality is not a new thing. Mass incarceration is not a new thing. Violence, marginalization, and oppression are not only recent experiences. The church is not exempt from our complicity in white supremacy. We must repent. We must lament our own participation in racist systems and cycles of oppression and marginalization. We, as the church, must boldly proclaim Black Lives Matter. And I'd like to look at one biblical character that I suspect gives us insight on how to respond. Story of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah heard about the suffering and the trauma that the people in and around Jerusalem had encountered, the first chapter of Nehemiah tells us that he responded this way. By the way, Nehemiah means God comforts. It says, one of my brothers and I came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped captivity, and about Jerusalem, and they replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah lamented. Nehemiah listened to the bad news from the luxury and privilege of the palace. He was willing to listen to the experiences of those who were different than himself. Nehemiah listened to the bad news, to the plight of the poor and the oppressed. Nehemiah was moved by the suffering of others, demonstrating that God is moved by the suffering of others as well. Nehemiah wept. Nehemiah mourned. Nehemiah fasted. And Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah lamented to God on behalf of the pain and agony experienced by God's people. Nehemiah lamented. And as Nehemiah lamented, he was led to action. He leveraged his privilege with the king to fight against injustice and to fight for those who were suffering. Nehemiah listened. Nehemiah lamented. And Nehemiah acted. I suspect that Nehemiah is a model for the church, for Christians today. We must listen to the bad news. We must lament our participation in unjust systems. And then we must act. You know, oftentimes during our laments, we cry, why? As Dr. Young shared, 
from Habakkuk, how long, O Lord? Or as Dr. LaFountain shared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our laments, we often cry out, God, do something about this. It doesn't have to be this way. Where are you, God? And maybe God responds, I did something. I created you. Now get to work. Because there is much to be done. Christian theologian James Cone wrote a book entitled The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he suggests that as Americans, we cannot understand the cross unless we look through the lens of our cross, the lynching tree. My friends, we have work to do. We must listen, we must lament, and we must act. For the Spirit of the Lord is upon us, because he has anointed us to bring good news to the poor. He has sent us to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. May it be so with us. Amen. Thank you so much. Would you join me in thanking our panelists this morning for this conversation? Thank you so much. We do have just a couple minutes left, probably just time for one or two questions. Uh, so I think Moesha has the microphone. Uh, if anybody has a question for any of our panelists this morning, just raise your hand and Moesha can come, come to you. Time is short, folks. Don't let it slip away. This is your one and only chance. It's not like you're going to see these people around campus and you can ask them then. All right, no questions? Okay, well, we are short on time. We're pretty much out of time. So, uh, Dr. Nielsen, would you close us in prayer and lead us in the doxology? Absolutely, I guess we explained it that well, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this day, for your presence in our lives. We thank you that you so fully identified with our suffering that you entered into it. We thank you that we can offer our cries of lament to you without hesitation, without fear, uh, that we can lift up our sorrows and offer our pain, to make a sacrifice of shameful things in our lives and in our worlds, and recognize that in this faithful act, we will begin uh, the work of peacemaking and reconciliation, the work of, of seeking justice and living lives in ways that respond to the needs around us. And so, Lord, even as we've written down today some of those laments, I pray that you would draw close to those who weep today for whatever reason, that you would draw close to us in sorrow, in our confusion, in our despair, in all the ways that we enter this life with uh, just awareness of the things that aren't the way they should be. May we listen as we have just heard. May we lament that, and then may we be moved to follow you in ways that would and seek to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with you. As we go from this place, would you make us a peaceful people faithful to this, to this task? May we not uh, apologize for our tears, but offer them faithfully as prayer and as worship and as witness. And may we continue to trust in you, knowing that in the midst of all that we face, you will be faithful. For your grace and goodness, we give you thanks. And we offer ourselves to you, and we offer even our sorrow. 
For we ask it in the name of the man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief, even Jesus. Amen. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Bless you. Go in peace.